I want you to take a deep breath. I want you to relax a little bit. Are you ready for it? You are going to die. Maybe not right this moment, but you are going to die. There are days in the future that you are not going to partake of. There are sunsets that you're not going to see. There are developments, tech developments. There are great feats. There are discoveries ahead of us in the future that you will not, I will not participate in. We will not witness. We will not be a part of them. And why is that? As I've said, it's because you're going to die. You are terminal. Psalm 89, verse 48 says, What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of the grave? Now, I suspect you didn't come to church this morning wanting to face your mortality head on. But until you're ready to encounter your death or think about your death, well, I believe you're not really ready to embrace, you might say, eternal life or your life. In generations past, people thought much more about death, and before certain developments in medicine and sanitation, they had good reason to think more about death. Plague and famine, even war around them, brought them much closer to death than we are. In many ways, religion exists to address death. Michael Whitmer in his book, The Last Enemy, writes, if death was no big deal, then there would be no reason to be a Christian. Speaking of religions, Buddhism suggests that suffering and death is simply an illusion. Hinduism suggests that or claims that the bad karma of death, you might say, can be fixed if we devote ourselves to a multitude of idols, even ourselves as idols. Islam suggests that pride is the highest problem, and to overcome this, we must submit to Allah. The religion of Christianity is very honest about death, you know that. Job cries out, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. He's saying there, my days are light. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. Of course, this is from man's perspective, right? This is from the human perspective. He returns no more to his house. He dies and he never goes back into his house. Nor does his place know him anymore. People forget about us. Job's lamenting, crying out about that. Solomon, too. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Solomon is lamenting that he doesn't see any difference between man and animals. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast, he says. All is vanity. Of course, this is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. 
Solomon says, all go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Who can answer those questions? The psalmist? The, the cries, you might say, of, of these lamentations kind of reach a crescendo, crescendo, excuse me, in Psalm 88, verses 9 and 10. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. And then the question he asks, do you work wonders for the dead? This is the the greatest question of all history. Do Do the departed, he asks, do the departed rise up to praise you? This is really, you might say, the resounding cry of the Old Testament. This is the giant question mark that the Old Testament leaves us with. What's going to happen? Will you rescue us, Lord? Will the departed rise up to praise you? How do we overcome death? This is the reason why, when we turn to the New Testament, what do we hear about? Good news. We hear about the good news, the gospel. And it's in the good news that we find the answer to this question. How do we overcome death? We learn the answers to these questions. Listen carefully, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Listen carefully. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that is, we share together in humanity, right? There's a solidarity here. We like to think we're different, but we're not. We're all the same. Since we share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, Satan, and deliver, it says, all those who through fear of death, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to deliver us from the devil and to deliver us from death. Hallelujah. Thank you, Sue. It's likely the case that if you think sin and death are nothing to worry about, if you think they're not worth considering, well, you probably won't think much about the one who came to destroy sin and death. The better we grasp the problem, you might say, the better we might grasp the solution. And so it's good for us to think about death. I suppose then this message is designed those is designed specifically designed for those who are ready to face their mortality head on. That's what this message is for. I wouldn't go so far as to say although I'm going to say it if you're not ready to do that then you can leave. <laughs> Cuz this message is for those people. The message is designed for those who are ready to face the facts head on. As I said, you're going to die. That's the truth. 
But thankfully, as soon as we come to that place, as soon as we accept that, look it in the face, well, our Lord is there to carry us. He's there to help us. He meets us as soon as we look it in the face. That is death. He's standing ready to teach us how to overcome death. And that is the goal this morning. It's to answer the question, how do you, how do we overcome death? John 11, verses 36 through 44. Would you please stand? John 11, verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The only sacred words that will be spoken this morning. Scripture. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This is what we'll pursue this morning. This is our big idea for cries, we're going to call them, that teach us how to overcome death. Four cries teach us how to overcome death. You know, body language is the way we speak without using our words, whether it's clenched fists or a warm smile. We are communicating, and Jesus was communicating over the grave of Lazarus. He was communicating when he was weeping. As we learned last week, his tears came as he, as he took in the features of this fallen world. He was deeply moved. We talked about that. He was, he was angry. He was angry at, that death had entered into, into this world. So he looked out at, into that fallen world and, and it, it stirred him to anger and sadness and grief. He was a man and he lost his friend. And in seeing the pain of those around him, it says, he wept. That's where we ended last week. This action, this weeping, like any body language, was interpreted by those around him. And so we see that in verses 36 and 37. We'll see the first cry, the cries of the confused. The cries of the confused. Look at verses 36 and 37 again. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? In both of these verses, we see observers that are curiously right and curiously wrong. It's true that Jesus loved Lazarus, as verse 36 says. 
Yet the sentiment is not entirely right. Excuse me, that's verse 35 that says that. The sentiment of verse 36 is not entirely right. These Jews seem to be seeing Jesus' tears as they see their own. They view his grief through their own grief. They don't realize that Jesus' grief is not despairing nor disconcerting. Jesus is neither hopeless nor is he confused. And in verse 37, there are others. And they wonder why Jesus couldn't have healed Lazarus as he opened the eyes of a blind man. And on the one hand, their reasoning is very sound. Jesus did heal the blind man, and Jesus could have healed Lazarus. He could have done those things. Nevertheless, they were unable to see how the glory of God might be viewed through the veil of Lazarus' death. I don't think either of these responses, as verse 36 and verse 37, should be viewed overly negative, as overly negative, you might say. Death does confuse us. I know you've probably been confused by death in your life. I have been confused by death. Good and godly people are confused when death draws near. We struggle with the question for the ages. How could Jesus love so much and and yet let such a thing happen? It's a valid question. How could a good God allow such pain, which we've been talking about for the last two weeks? Two weeks ago, we kind of addressed it more head on. And the answer to those questions is really what we've been pursuing for these three weeks now. Two things in this study have become abundantly clear. Number one, the world is filled with trials and troubles, pain and suffering, It's all around us, and all of it is a result of sin. As Paul explained in Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, Romans 5.12. That is abundantly clear. And number two, these trials and troubles, this suffering and death, these are opportunities is what's so hard. These are opportunities for God to work, for God to do some of His finest work in this world and upon our hearts. Let me remind you of John 11 verse 4. We studied it two weeks ago. But when Jesus heard of it, He heard of the death of Lazarus, that Lazarus had fallen sick. And He said, this illness does not lead to death. Its final purpose is not death. This illness, this sickness, this pain, this suffering is for something. I'm going to use it for something. What are you going to use it for? Well, he says, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The death of Lazarus was for good. That being said, being people of faith, We're not beyond these cries of the confused. Death confuses us, as I've said. It's my prayer through this study this morning even, that seeing how Jesus overcame death might bring clarity to the questions that you have regarding God's purpose of sin and death. Learning how to overcome death is a balm to those who are broken and confused about death. And so it's my hope that this story will come to your aid. 
if in fact you are confused. Verse 38, we see Jesus approach the tomb. And as we've seen, Jesus approaches the tomb not with apathy, but with great interest and passion. He strides to the tomb as the one come into the world to conquer sin and death. And moved moved to take action, Jesus offers a command in verse 39. Take away the stone, he says. The second cry that will teach us how to overcome death is found in Martha's response to this command. We'll call it the cries of the conflicted. The cries of the conflicted. Look at verse 39 again, about halfway through there. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Martha is conflicted. Here she's standing in opposition to Jesus. Not only this, but she's even conflicted within herself because you remember last week she exercised great faith. She possessed great faith in Jesus. Verse 27, you recall she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She is confident that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Yet, short time, here she stands in opposition to Jesus. And her concerns are valid. Experiencing the death of her brother was hard enough. And now she has to endure his odor. I imagine how she felt. Look, we've been through that. The body was wrapped. It was tucked into the tomb. Jesus, don't pull him back out. I don't want to see him anymore. Just leave well enough alone. Martha was conflicted. Now, if we think about Martha's response in the best light... We see a believer struggling with the will of God. That's what she's doing. We see a woman who's not sure if the actions of Jesus are best. She's clutching to Jesus' arm, gripping him, begging him to relent from his plan. Don't do it. Don't remove that stone. Let's move on. Leave the body undisturbed. I don't doubt Martha had a strong faith. I think this passage overall demonstrates that she did have a strong faith. Yet, I believe this is evidence that her faith broke down under trial, as our faith does too often. J.C. Ryle said, How easy is it to talk of faith in the days of health and prosperity, and how hard to practice it in the days of darkness, when neither sun, moon, nor stars appear. We're on cloud nine one moment the little struggle comes into our life and we lose everything. We're full and then we're empty all too often. So it is with Martha. Calvin said, the root of Martha's problem was not that she measured, quote, the infinite and incomprehensible power of God by the perception of the flesh. That's what she did. She measured God by her own understanding of what's possible, what's likely. And so, certainly, he was still dead and he's going to stink. Don't open the tomb. Being concerned with the decay of her brother, she infers that no no remedy can be found. How often are we so focused on the decay around us that we've banished God's plan from us? 
How strange it is that while we plead for God to move, we're conflicted. Calvin again, he says, distracted in various ways, we fight with ourselves. And while we stretch out one hand to ask assistance from God, help me, Lord, we repel, he says, with the other, that very assistance as soon as it is offered. We, we request, move the mountain, Lord. But then when he attempts to move it, oh, you can't do that. You're not big enough for that. Martha gives us a wonderful example of faith in verse 27. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And yet, verse 39 reveals that she had a conflicted faith. Martha's story helps us to see what faith looks like in faithful people. Martha was the first to come to Christ. When he came near to Bethany, she ran to go see him. There's a fly bothering me. Excuse me. She fled to him with urgency as he drew near to Bethany. Yet once in our Savior's presence, she launched all kinds of difficulties towards him. She doubted his prayer life with the Father. She doubted his person. Verses 22 and verses 24. We studied that last week. She saw Jesus as less than an equal with God. She had a, she, her view of Jesus wasn't big enough. She had a small view of God, at least of Jesus. Yet, verse 27 again, she strove to believe. She was fighting the fight of faith. Things got practical, as is often the case in our lives. Jesus commanded the stone to be removed, and she failed. She doubted. How could this be? She failed to ascribe to God a power her senses could not comprehend. Martha's life, then, is a portrait of the fight of faith for faithful people. That's what it looks like. Thankfully, we know that our Lord deals very tenderly with those who are faithful. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Look at Jesus' response to Martha in verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? This is his response, and this is our next cry. We'll call this next section, verses 40 through 42, the cries of the convinced. The cries of the convinced. There's two parts of this. Verse 40 is the first part, and it's the condition. If you believe, then you'll see the glory of God. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a condition. This is what Jesus claims to have told Martha. If you believe, then you'll see the glory of God. That being said, John actually doesn't record Jesus spoke these words to Martha. The closest thing we have to this is found in verses, verse 4. Again, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. These words, however, were not spoken to Martha. They were spoken to the messengers and likely the disciples who are with Jesus. Whatever the specific details are, at some point, Jesus must have communicated this concept to Martha. Because he says, did I not tell you? He must have communicated it. Furthermore, in some ways, this reality 
that Martha would see the glory of God is, is in some ways a summary of what Jesus said to her in verses 25 and 26, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He doesn't say it specifically, but what else could a resurrection be but a manifestation of the glory of God? Now, I've highlighted that this verse is a condition. Jesus is saying that a condition must be met in order to see the glory of God. And what is that condition? Belief. It's belief. It's always belief with John. Over and over and over again, he wants us to believe. This means that the highest meaning, the highest reason for raising Lazarus from the dead namely, that one would see the glory of God, the highest reason is only accessible through faith. It's the only way that we can see the glory of God in the resurrection of Lazarus is if we believe. How many people stood around Lazarus's tomb? How many people heard Jesus say, take away the stone? How many people heard the booming voice of Jesus, Lazarus, come out? How many people saw a man stumble from a tomb in his grave clothes? How many people saw the glory of God? Only those who believed. Because that's the condition that has to be met in order to see the glory of God in the resurrection of Lazarus. While the crowd might have seen a miracle... Only the believers had access to its real significance, the glory of God. There's something else here. The words of verse 40 are a condition, but they're also a commitment. They're words of promise. It's God's commitment, His promise that if you believe, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So what he's saying in this verse. There's a positive promise found in verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you, will, you would see, you will see the glory of God? It hadn't happened yet. He would raise Lazarus from the dead and there would be the manifestation of God's glory. It's a promise. You remember the words of John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus will never cast us out, and Jesus is committed to revealing His glory to us, to all those who would believe. And that glory will be on display when the imperishable takes on the perishable. When the perishable, excuse me, takes on the imperishable. When our mortal bodies put on immortality, when death is swallowed up in victory, and that which was sown in dishonor is finally raised in glory. This is God's promise for all those who have believed in Him. Let's make sure that we're not like those who stood at Lazarus' tomb and saw the resurrection, but didn't see the glory of God. It's a warning for us. We can witness the miracles of God and yet miss it. We can fail to see what's really behind that the glory of God. I don't know if that's you. I just know John says, believe. Jesus says, believe. Keep believing. 
Scripture is clear at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Jesus, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The question is, from what perspective will you experience that glory? Will you see that glory and rejoice because you believed? Or will you declare that God is glorious with broken knees? Because every tongue will confess and every knee will bow to him. And so don't be like those who saw the resurrection of Lazarus and yet missed the glory of God. Believe on him. And so when we see the resurrection, we see the manifestation of God's glory in all its beauty. I don't have a better word. We see the cries of the convinced again Continuing in verses 41 and 42. Here we find a prayer of Jesus. Verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus' words. This is a prayer from Jesus. This is really a prayer of thanksgiving. I thank you, Lord, is what Jesus is doing. That you have heard me. Must be, the, must be the case then that Jesus had already prayed that Lazarus would be raised from the dead. He already prayed for the resurrection of Lazarus, having received an answer from the Father, which we're not privy to, but this is what he says. He thanks him publicly for having heard his prayer, for having always heard his prayer. It must be the case. Jesus had already prayed. The Father already answered him his prayer, and so he thanks him publicly. And Jesus expresses great confidence in the Father's will. It's going to happen. And again, we see John stressing, as he always does, the equality between Jesus and the Father, even here in this prayer that we're given Jesus says, I knew that you always hear me. There's an unceasing dialogue between the Father and the Son. Jesus truly was one who prayed without ceasing, as Paul exhorted us to do. And this prayer of thanksgiving reveals that Jesus could do nothing of himself. Recall John 5, 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Therefore, the Son is completely dependent on the Father. He's wholly leaning on His Father's Word. Now think with me about this for a minute. One of the secrets to an inward contentment, an inward comfort and contentment, is a clear understanding of Christ's person, who Jesus is, the knowledge of God. Paul demonstrates this inward comfort and contentment when he said, 2 Timothy 1.12, I know, he says, whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Do we know? Are we convinced in whom we have believed? 
as Paul was. Here's a profound otherworldly truth. The knowledge of God brings us inward comfort. Listen to Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, verses 16 through 19. I do not cease to give thanks for you, he's writing to the Ephesians, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge, he says, in the knowledge of Him. The more we know about God, the more we'll able to experience those rich benefits of the Christian life. Wisdom, discernment, comfort. Listen to what he goes on, on to say. We have the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might. All of that is ours. We, take, we put our hands around it. We experience it, and it brings us comfort and contentment. If we know God, as we study who He is, the Puritan Stephen Charnock wrote extensively on the knowledge of God, way extensively, <laughs> a lot of words on the knowledge of God. He wrote, the knowledge of God is not, a, not only a knowledge of God and Christ in the theory, it's just not a the theoretical exercise, the knowledge of God, but he says, but such knowledge is saving. It's a saving knowledge. That's because saving faith, friends, in my words, saving faith is sanctifying faith. They're one and the same. Listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they, what? Know you. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Calvin said of this verse, the final goal of the blessed life rests in the knowledge of God. That's our goal, to know God, to take Him in, all that He is. Quote from Augustine, similarly, the final felicity of man consists only in the contemplation of God. I know it seems so abstract to us, of what, what are we going to do in heaven? We're going to think about God. That's how beautiful God is. You think it's amazing to take in a great painting? I love paintings. You think it's amazing to take in a great sunset? To spend time with your family? All that's great. But nothing, it compares nothing to taking in who God is, to just mulling Him over in our minds. Because He's the most beautiful, the most perfect thing that ever was and that ever would be. And the means that God uses in your life to transform you into His image, part of that is that you exercise that now. That you think about who He is. That you train your mind. You put who He is in your mind and it works something out in your life. It changes you. Think about it this way. Imagine the knowledge of God in a stream. I know, I don't mean to damper God's, who God is in any way, but imagine all that God is in a stream. All of His attributes, all of His actions, all of His character, everything that makes up who God is, is in a stream. And you're standing in this stream and you have a dirty t-shirt, some article of clothing that's dirty, and you're standing in the knowledge of God. 
And as you plunge that shirt into the river and you twist it and you wring it, the waste is coming out while all the parts of God, the knowledge of God are coming into that article of clothing. That's what it's like. That's what we're doing in the Christian life is we're wringing ourselves out. We're removing all of that filth as God's purity, God's character, God's actions come into our life. It's in the same way that it changes that cloth, it changes you and me. And so we can't overlook, we can't sidestep the revelation of who God is in the Scriptures for seemingly practical matters. Because the contemplation of God is, you might say, the most practical thing, although it doesn't feel like it. But it truly is. It forms us and it shapes us and it changes us. And it will change us today. I believe that to be true. We ought not to dwell on little truths that will grow out of, but big truths about God that will grow into. So that is our goal always. So Jesus stands publicly before a crowd, and he declares, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, he says, but I said this, I said this publicly about you hearing me. I said that. I mentioned publicly that you always hear me on account of these people that are gathered here. And why? Why did I want these people to hear and to grow in their understanding of who we are? That they might believe that you sent me. Again, John wants us to see the amazing complexity of all that God is in his relationship with the Son and the Father, and he wants us to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back at verses 14 and 15. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, he says, I am glad. I take joy that I was not there. So that you may believe, he says. Jesus had joy that he wasn't there. Why? So that they might believe. Yet they had already believed. Let me put this together for you try to pull this together. Jesus wants us to see the resurrection of Lazarus as an answer to his prayer. That's, a, that's an integral part of what's happening here. He wants us to see this as an answer to his prayer. And through prayer, he wants us to see that he's in perfect communion with the Father. He's convincing us again that Jesus and the Father are one, that they're equal. He wants us to see him as the one sent from the Father, as Martha said in verse 27, the one who is, as she says, coming into the world, that he is the Deliverer, capital D. This is what the resurrection of Lazarus reveals. Yes, it answers the question, how do we overcome death? We are in here, but even more important than us, God is here. God is in this passage He's at the forefront. We cannot acknowledge what this does in our lives before we acknowledge what it says about who He is. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the true light, which gives light to everyone. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
in this way, you might say that this miracle is very Christocentric. It's really about who Jesus is first. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, as Jesus says. And it's the hope of Christ that those who haven't believed might believe. They might believe and they might see such glory that they might cry out with conviction, change their heart in the moment, and believe and then see the Lord Jesus Christ. And that those who have believed, those disciples who already believed, Martha, that she would grow in her faith, that her faith would be stretched and she would be strengthened in her belief as a result of this miracle. And all of this brings us to our fourth cry, fourth cry that will teach us how to overcome death, the cries of the converted, the cries of the converted. Look at verses 43 and 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So we have the seventh sign in John's gospel, the seventh miracle. Jesus turned water into wine. You remember, he healed the official's son from afar. He healed the paralyzed man. He fed the multitude. He walked on water. He gave the blind man sight. And now, in the seventh miracle, he has raised a man from the dead. And along the way, what did he declare? He says, I am Ego eimi, which is the way in the Greek of saying Yahweh, because God's divine name is just, it's a verb, I am. I exist, I'm here. I'm not going away. I wasn't created, I'll always be here. And so he, he even defies grammar in, in his name. There's no way to rightly capture it. It doesn't make sense. I am the bread of life, okay. He's saying, I am Yahweh, I'm the bread of life with the predicate. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And here in John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And while Jesus does give resurrection and life, there's more. That's what he's saying. He is resurrection and life. To say that he is the resurrection means that death which appears so final from our perspective, is no end because He is the resurrection. To say that He is the life means that the quality of life that He imparts, it can begin right now, right here, because He is life in this moment and forevermore. And He always was. There was no life until He spoke life and created it in this place. Had he not spoken, there never would have been, except in himself, of which he was perfectly content to be with himself, because he is perfect. When Jesus calmed the storm, you remember the disciples, they marveled. What did they say? What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? Who is this guy? Well, when Jesus raised, raises a man from the dead, what ought we to say? Who is this man that even raised a man from the dead? 
Who can do such things? Only God can do such things. Someone said, if Jesus wouldn't have specified, Lazarus, come out, all the tombs of the world would have given up their dead. I don't know if that's true or not, but I like it. I like to think it's true. That's the kind of power that Jesus has because that's what will happen in the future. All the tombs will be opened. When Jesus died on the cross, Matthew gives us that very compelling picture of of the dead coming out of their graves. It's as if the the spiritual world was so shaking that people just came out of the grave. There's so much spiritual truth there. It's beyond our understanding. We can't take it in. It's so deep. John gives us details here that suggest he was an eyewitness. He says the man's hand and feet and face were wrapped, Lazarus. It's likely the the case that he was wrapped to such a degree that you can imagine this man kind of hopping and skipping his way out of this tomb and wrapped up in these, you know, the death clothes, so to speak. And so Jesus commands him, commands the people there, unbind him and let him go. I don't know that we can over-exaggerate this miracle. It is too big. There's a reason why, you know, history has given us many faith healers and people that have made people walk. They've healed various illnesses. You hear about these these things in the world, but nobody raises people from the dead. And if they do, where's the proof? It's the biggest miracle. Our minds can hardly take in such a possibility. And And so here in this passage, we see in the light of a clear day, not in some corner of the world where nobody was, but in the light of a clear day with a crowd around, even those who opposed Jesus standing there, a common man, four days dead, raised from the dead, walked out of a tomb with a simple word, come out. The story, this miracle, gives us proof that the Lord Jesus has absolute power over this world. This world and the spiritual invisible world, whatever other world there is out there, he's got, he's got power over that one as well. A soul that left its body, don't ask me where it was, I don't know, but a soul that left its body in, by a word was put back in the flesh and came to life again and walked out of the tomb. It's unspeakable, it's so magnificent that this would have happened. And there's no doubt that this story and the miracle it contains fills us with great comfort. There's great power in this miracle for us. J.C. Ryle says, Comfortable is the thought that the loving Savior of sinners, on whose mercy our souls entirely depend, is one who has all power in heaven and earth and is mighty to save. Comfortable is the thought that there is no sinner too far gone in sin for Christ to raise and convert. As he stood, as he that stood by the grave of Lazarus can say to the vilest of men, come forth, loose him, and let him go. Comfortable, not least, is the thought that when we ourselves lie down in the grave, we may lie down in the full assurance that we shall rise again. The voice that called Lazarus forth will one day pierce our tombs and bid soul and body come together 
end quote. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, you know it well, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be, what? Changed. I want to be changed. (laughs) Do you guys? Amen. That's the promise. That's what this miracle does. It gives us assurance that you will be changed. But only there's a condition. And the condition is belief. We don't see it if we don't believe. Four cries teach us how to overcome death. The cry of the confused as we saw, teaches us that although things might look out of control, God is very much in control. The cry of the conflicted teaches us that although we might find ourselves opposing God at times, He's still there to graciously lead us. He was graciously leading Martha. The cry of the convinced teaches us that belief Friends, belief is the open window to the glory of God. It's the only way that we can see it. And finally, the cry of the converted provides us an invitation to respond. You know, as complete as this story is, and it is very complete, there's a lot of details that are given here. The Bible uses an economy of words, and, and we're given rich detail. But there's something seemingly important that's missing well, where's the response of Lazarus? What's he think about all this? How did he feel? Was this like the best day of his life? Did he have a backache? Did he need a chiropractor? Did he need some aspirin? Probably not. Now, we know he, he would eventually decay, he would die again. Uh, he wasn't raised, to, you know, without corruption. It would happen, but... But in that moment, I imagine he felt great. But yet, we're not given a response from Lazarus. We don't know. And so in some ways, the the silence of Lazarus, we might say, speaks louder than the cry of Jesus. How did he feel? What would he have thought? That bright light piercing his eyes, escaping death. I'm going to leverage the silence of Lazarus and ask you, how would you respond? There's no doubt that this miracle gives us great assurance of a future physical resurrection. If Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, well, then he can raise our mortal bodies from the dead. But there's more to the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus is the resurrection and the life now. Remember, all of this is really predicated on what he told Martha earlier that He is the resurrection and the life now. And so the resurrection and life that He offers is available this very moment for all those who would believe in Him. It seems to be the bigger point, at least for us right now. The resurrection of Lazarus is a story designed to encourage us in many ways. The story gives us the strength to face our own mortality, even the mortality of our friends, our loved ones, our families. It gives us what we need to face those things with strength and dignity. Yet, the resurrection of Lazarus speaks of a new life. 
a new life that we have access to this very moment. There's power in the name of Jesus. Everything in this world is trying to tell you there's not. Even your flesh is telling you to give up. And so we're fighting back. In every moment, we're saying, Jesus has power. He is bigger than this struggle. He is bigger than this problem. And when I don't have answers, when the people around me that I love die, God, it's for your glory. You're working something out in this, as hard as that is. All that is being taught to us in this story. The voice of Jesus will not only wake those who are physically dead, but the voice of Jesus can, as you know if you believe, it can wake those who are spiritually dead. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did He do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. That's one of those theologians call realized eschatology, this fancy kind of word. Paul's speaking as if it's already done. We're seated in the heavenly places. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. That's how assured it is. That's how assured he is of of the resurrection. It's as good as done. I'm going to use the past tense. You're seated in the heavenly places. You've been raised from the dead. If you believe in him, that's what Paul is saying. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It is God's gift to all those who would believe in him. So how do you overcome death? How can you be made alive with Christ? How can we be raised up with him? How can we come forth from the tomb as Lazarus did? It's the same word. We're saying it over and over again. Believe. Keep believing. And so John doesn't give us the response from Lazarus. I believe he leaves it up to us. It's for us to respond. We get to respond. And so, how would you respond? Maybe I should say, how have you responded? Or, maybe, how will you respond? I'm going to invite Joel and the musicians up, and I'm going to do something a little different here this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to read a response from Scripture. And together, we're going to respond. And it's Psalm 103. And so we're going to respond with Psalm 103, and then we're going to let Joel and the musicians lead us in song, and we're going to sing together. Psalm 103, you're more than welcome to open up in your Bible and hear the response of David. Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. He says, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over him and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers. It's you. Bless the Lord, his ministers, who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I hope you can say these words. Joel.